Thank you for choosing to listen to our sermon podcast. My name is Chris Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at First Covenant Church of Anchorage. If you have any questions or prayer requests, feel free to stop by or send an email to office at anchoragefirstcovenant.com. God bless. Well, good morning. Welcome. Uh, thanks for having us. For um, I don't know if you look around, if you can tell or not. We don't have a large congregation, but our congregation is here. Uh, to worship with you this morning. We just canceled church at the library in Mountain View and said, let's all come rather than just me come and share a little bit about what we're doing. Um, when I was trying to think about what it's like for me to come back here, we, we were here for, I don't know, it was 12 or 13 years, right? And, and when I think about it, for me, it feels like something almost like what it felt like coming home after going away to college. Really, you come home to something that's so familiar, and it is people that you know and you love, but you've changed, and so have they, right? And so it's not exactly, it's not just like, oh, let's just step back into exactly what it was before. It's different, but it's, there's a, there's a, a love and a kinship, and um, I don't know, it's wonderful. It's really, really great to be back and to just be able to, to share this space and this time to be able to, to see friends and, I mean, family, really. Like, I still think about the fact that, I mean, all my children were baptized in this church. They were raised in this church. Um, it's fun to me to have a bunch of you go, like, holy smokes, that's your kid. Like, that, like, because they've grown up. That's what kids do, right? But thank you for having us and including us in worship this morning. Um, I'm going, but maybe before we even dig into what I'm going to do, Let's just take a minute. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Lord, may the, the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, the, the thoughts of our minds, may they be directed by your Holy Spirit and may they bring honor and glory to you because of who you are, because of what you've done, and because of all that you've promised to do. We commit this time to you, and we ask for your leading. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I've been, since, I don't know, mid-July, since the rain began, I feel like, um, my sermon series at Mountain View Hope hasn't been much of a, a sermon series, at least not in like a thematic sense. Uh, I've been really just preaching from... Whatever gospel text has been assigned by the Revised Common Lectionary for each week, which means that our church has been in the book of Luke for a while now, a couple of months anyhow, and, and when I was asked what I might be sharing today here, I admit that I considered changing things, like, like preaching about maybe something that we're doing in Mountain View or about the unity of the church or something, but at the end of the day, I just felt led to just kind of keep going with what we've been doing. Um, and so we're going to preach, I'm going to preach the, the the assigned passage from the book of Luke this morning. Um, I love the Gospels. I, I love encountering Jesus in, in the stories written by these Gospel writers. And, and I've loved to come, or I've come to love Jesus's parables a lot, which is that's what we have today. That's what's assigned for today as one of Jesus' parables. That being said, I, the, the parable assigned for today is probably one of the toughest, 
most confusing, most difficult parables, I think, for people to understand today, but also like throughout the ages. Uh, it, it's never been easy to understand, and it's always caused people to ask questions like, what does this even mean? Um, but there's something about passages like that that I find particularly attractive. Uh, because if they weren't assigned for the day, we might just avoid them altogether and never even look at them. Um, and because they're so jarring to us, when we do take the time to read these difficult passages, I think we actually like pay attention differently. They, they, they pique our curiosity and they force us to kind of wrestle with, with good questions that can be really hard to answer, which frankly I think is good for us. When we get too comfortable with God's word, if we reach a point where God's word isn't really challenging us to the, like the, the very core of who we are and the kind of lives that we live, the, the way that we see God or the world or other people, even ourselves, life itself, like, like it, if, we, if God's word doesn't challenge us, then we aren't listening with ears that can hear the Holy Spirit speaking through God's word. Because God's word should always pierce us to the core of who we are. It should always challenge us to see things differently, which, which ought to result, I think, in lives, lived lives, that are radically different than the comfortable lives that we tend to pursue and, frankly, like settle into. So we're going to take a look at this difficult passage, this parable for today, and then we'll dig in a little more. It's found in Luke 16, verses 1 to 13. It says, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, well, what should I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest ma manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? 
And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. So there are a lot of things to be said here. And, and one of the problems, I think, in dealing with this parable is that there are so many things to say. Like, there's so many that by the time we've said them all, we actually run the risk of, like, missing the point. That we risk majoring on all the minor elements of the parable instead of searching for what's like the main point. What is this thing, seek, seek, what is Jesus seeking to teach us in all of this? And, and I think especially for us and, and really anyone throughout the ages who lives according to what we would say are like the ways of the world. Like, like even, even if we only focus on the main point, if we view things the way that the world around us views things, it's still pretty easy, I think, to miss the point. And, and what makes this parable so troubling, so perplexing, is that we have this story with, with an authority figure, right? this rich man, the, the master, and then we have this person who works for him, his manager, this person who oversees all of his master's accounts. And when we have stories like this, one of the things that we pretty naturally tend to do is we allegorize them. We go, okay, well, obviously the, the authority figure must stand, be a stand-in for God and the manager must be a stand-in for someone like, like, like me or ourselves or people like, like... But if we do that, we create problems for ourselves. Because if it was as simple as that, then we'd have Jesus telling a story whose who's like, meaning basically is that God is pleased with us when we're able to curry favors for ourselves by dishonest means. That doesn't sound very much like the God who's revealed in the scriptures. To me, like, so, so, so what are the, the different issues that we need to consider uh, that will help us understand what this parable is all about? There are more than a few, but I'm only going to major on a few of what I think are probably the most important ones. One of the things that I would wish I could do, that I would like to do, is act like there's just no time to do it. I would love to like take you through a historic like view of all, like a complete historic view of all the different ways this parable has been understood kind of throughout time. Because when that, when you do that, when like what happens is you start to see the history of its interpretation has a lot of variety. Uh, it highlights just how hard this parable has been for people to reconcile. In fact, I think a lot of the commentators who write about this passage, they love to show, like they write about all the different interpretations of this parable throughout history because that makes it clear to us that people have often felt forced to, to try to make this parable make sense. Rather than just like, 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 to make it fit with our preconceived notions and our, our things that we already believed. So you gotta like, just force it to fit what we already believe. But I think sometimes what we really should do then, if we're feeling that way, is just admit that there are things that we don't understand. We need to, 
to keep searching when we're feeling like that. I found 16 different uh, interpret explanations of this parable. Like some of them were, were close to each other, were, but they had meaningful differences from one another. 16 different explanations for what this parable is all about. And I can't go through 16 different explanations today, but I do want to go over a few uh, because I think it's helpful. First of all, the, the most traditional view, the most widely accepted view when it comes to interpreting this parable is that this manager in the story is praised only for his, his shrewdness, his wisdom, his cleverness, and particularly for his shrewdness with regards to his use of money. That is what he's praised for, not his dishonesty. He's not praised for his dishonesty. This, this traditional view usually downplays the dishonesty and majors on the fact that he just did whatever he could. He did whatever it took for him to be able to, to achieve, kind of to save himself, right? To, 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 to achieve his goal, which was to not be forced to beg or to dig. Um, and that view kind of result, I, I think the, the interpretation for ourselves, that view is that, that, that Jesus is then urging his listeners and therefore us to, to do whatever it takes, specifically with our use of, of money and, and possessions and things like that, do whatever it takes to secure a future where we will be welcomed into an eternal home with God. Um, this is an attractive explanation, and there is, I think, very good reason that this is the traditional explanation. The downside is just simply that it doesn't really account for the fact that the, that the manager accomplishes goals by dishonest means, through dishonesty. Though, though maybe, maybe that's not what it was. Others have explained this parable by saying that there was no dishonesty in what the manager did, which certainly helps to, to deal with the tension that's created by the story. Um, but efforts to make it sound like there was no dishonesty just, just feel like a stretch. Um, it, it feels like a, a, an attempt to make a parable of Jesus more palatable to us. J.D.M. Derrett, a biblical scholar, said, said what the manager could have been doing was actually just canceling the interest that was built into um, the contract, which, which technically wouldn't have even been allowable for a Jew. And if this was the case, then even though the rich man was, was technically losing money in the deal because, because the interest was being canceled, well, this argument basically says, well, the manager canceled the interest and in doing so helped out the person who owed, you know, their olive oil or their wheat or whatever, and also made the, ma the master, the owner, the rich man, made him look good by, by being a righteous person and doing that which was right. Uh, and, and, and so the manager could then pray, or the master rather, could then praise the manager for his shrewdness by, by, by getting him what he was owed, but also by making him look good. Um, the other most common way that people have tried to kind of remove the tension is to say, well, the manager was probably working on commission. And so what he really did was just cancel his commission. You know, I won't take my portion. I'll reduce your price. My master gets everything that he is owed, but, I, but you like me now. So now I'll be welcomed into your homes when I find myself 
in need, which he could see coming really soon. These are also, I think, attractive explanations, but the problem with them is that they, they seem to fit like most of the parable, most of the elements of the story, but they don't really deal with the whole story, and they don't, they don't really like, help, help us understand the function then of the parable. Like for, for the people that Jesus is speaking to, um, if this manager was collecting sums this large from deals like this, then he wasn't going to find himself in an immediate crisis anytime soon. Um, certainly, he wouldn't have found himself in need of other people's generosity um, if he was regularly making half of what his master was making. Um, yeah. As far as the other explanations that are out there, there are a bunch. Um, but they generally, I think, they generally get more and more creative the farther you go down that rabbit hole. And, and, and they, they try to deal with the uncomfortable nature of the text, but in my best estimation, they're not very compelling. Adolf Uliger said that this isn't a parable about money at all. He said this is actually about the proper use of the present time in order to secure an eternal reward. Um, N.T. Wright says it's not money or about discipleship. He says it's about the eschatological crisis facing Israel, which is an attractive thing to say, except that, like, would Jesus' hearers have even, like, like had any, like, there's not enough clues in the text to make us go, oh, that's what this is about. Uh, Kenneth Bailey says that the whole thing is irony. Uh, Jesus just told this story to make people, like, uh, the, the, the people, he, to show that the people of this age think that they can influence the age to come when in fact they can't. And there's a bunch more explanations out there too. But like I said, I just, I, there's supposed to be a tension, I think, in, in, in the Bible. <laughs> like when we encounter God's word, it ought to confront us. There ought to be tension there. Um, so I guess what that leads me to ask is like, where does that leave us for today? Like what do we do with a text that's been confusing throughout history? The people have done all sorts of creative things with it in order to try to exploit it. When we take our time and we look at it, what might the Holy Spirit have to say to us through our explanation of God's word together? First of all, I think that when we try to understand the actions of this manager, what he did to, to reduce these prices and, and secure his future, we have to say, I think, that he was that what he did was dishonest. It wasn't the right thing to do in order to make his master look more righteous. Uh, the fact of the matter was that his master was owed a certain amount and the manager took upon himself to arbitrarily reduce the amounts that his, his master was going to receive without his master's permission. And I think more than any other reason that we have to say that what he did was dishonest is because Jesus did. Like in the story, in the parable, like, like in verse 8, Jesus says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. In, in the original language, those words, dishonest manager, are literally the steward of unrighteousness. There, there's no lack of clarity that what he did was wrong. The, the tension just comes in from the fact that for some reason, the master commends him for it. He praises him for being clever enough to save his own skin. 
even if he had to do it in a dishonest and unrighteous way. So if you have your Bible or your phone open or whatever, if you're looking at the text right now, you'll notice that the parable kind of ends at verse 9, or the explanation of the parable ends at verse 9 when Jesus says, And I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Those last four verses, verse 10, 11, 12, and 13, these are well-known sayings of Jesus. These are sayings of Jesus that you'll find in other Gospels. And when they're in the other Gospels, they're not attached to this parable. In fact, Luke is the only Gospel in which this parable is told. But those sayings about stewardship and about money and not being able to serve two masters, like, like these are well-known sayings of Jesus. And Luke included them right here after telling this parable Either because, uh, pro probably because they relate to it in some way. They're dealing with the same topic, right? But, but either they're related to it and they help us understand the parable, or they're related to it and the parable helps us understand the application of those sayings. At the very least, I think we have to say they're related. They're, they're, they're additional teachings on the same topic. Back to verse 9, at the end of the parable itself. If we want to make sense, I think, um, of the meaning of the parable, verse 9 is the key to understanding the parable. I tell you, use worldly wealth. Literally, the words there are the mammon of unrighteousness. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I think one of the interesting things that we miss out on because we read our Bibles in English, um, I think it's interesting that, that the dishonest manager was the steward of unrighteousness. And Jesus says, use mammon of unrighteousness in a shrewd way. Right? Like, like Klein Snodgrass, a former teacher of mine, a professor in North Park Seminary, world-renowned Bible scholar, said that that phrase, mammon of unrighteousness, should be understood this way. It's understood to mean money or, or a property or possessions that are of this unrighteous world, which have the tendency to corrupt. Things of this world, of this unrighteous world, that have the tendency to corrupt. When you have a bunch of it, you're tempted to use it only maybe for yourself and in what he would call selfish or corrupt ways. You can see the story about the manager, like the story that Jesus tells ends halfway through verse 8. Then in the second half of verse 8, Jesus makes this, this comment that kind of, I think, shows us like the arena, the sphere in which, about what this parable is really about. He says, for the people of this world, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. This is the arena that this parable seeks to address. Like, like This is what this is all about. The, the people of this world who are more shrewd, which is a weird word, right? More clever, more, more, more creative um, in, in deciding how to act in order to, to, to benefit themselves. The people of this world who are more shrewd in their world than the people of the light are in theirs. 
which I think to put this in language that we're more familiar with, more comfortable with, he's talking about the people who belong to this world versus people who belong to the kingdom of God. And Jesus says the people in this world are more shrewd, more clever, more creative, more whatever. Um, they, they have more street smarts, right? They have more common sense when it comes to figuring out how to get what they want or what they need. And Jesus says they're better at that than the people of the light are. Because the people who belong to God's kingdom so often are, are influenced by the world. Um, we operate by the wrong ways of the world in which we live. They don't, we don't act as shrewdly to secure our eternal dwellings with God because we have our eyes on the present, not on the future, not on eternity. So if that is the arena, if that's what this parable is about, and verse 9 is the key to understanding it, then how? Simply put, Jesus urges his listeners, and I think therefore us as well, he's speaking to his disciples, it says at the beginning of the parable, he urges them not to use the temporary, fleeting things of this world. Uh, he, well, he, because they have a tendency to corrupt, he says, right? Like, don't let them corrupt you. Don't be fooled into pursuing things for the sake of having things, like, or for feeling secure because you have all the things. Use what you've been given for more noble ends than that, maybe in ways that even would feel foolish to those of this world. But do so so that when it's gone, as the parable says, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I, verse 9 is disorienting. I think it's confusing that Jesus would by virtue of telling this parable essentially commend this dishonest person for being dishonest and then tell people to use their worldly wealth this way. But I think if we just get stuck there, like only trying to make sense of why does, how, like, like how does he commend him for this? If we get stuck there, then we miss the point of it. And I think the point of it is that if people in this world are clever enough to figure out how to secure a future for themselves, even when they've been doing like, wrong things and they've been caught doing wrong things. Like these people can be so clever as to do more wrong things in a way that'll get them what they still want. And if they're shrewd enough to figure out how to make their bad situation work for their benefit, then how much more should the people of God be able to do that when it comes to our eternal futures? There may be multiple points being made in this parable. And, and, and there, there may be multiple things that we can learn from this parable, but I think that this is the main point that Jesus is getting at when he tells it. His people need to be more inspired, more creative, more shrewd, have better smarts, about how to use our current situations and the, and the wealth of this world in ways that, that secure our eternal home with God. Like, put yourself in position through the use of your money, so, which can so easily lead you astray, but put yourself 
in a position so that when this age is over, God will receive you into your eternal dwelling. In the parable, in the story that Jesus told, the manager's facing a crisis. Right? The crisis of, he's going to be fired. And he's not going to have a job anymore. There's no like steady income going to be coming his way. And what this parable does for us, I think, is it causes us to see that we also face a crisis. Whether it's the end of our lives or the end of this age. Right? Like either when we pass away or when Jesus returns. Jesus reminds us that the end does come. And it will come. And it is inevitable. And we should see that as a crisis. And it should cause us to act in a way, in our, in a way that, that has our eternal best interests in mind. I, I know that that sounds like what we call works righteousness. Do all the right things in order to earn your salvation. But, but it only seems that way because we have this tendency to sort of like <laughs> distort faith and, and obedience, like to, to separate them as if they're different things. Uh, as if faith is just like, oh, well, I have faith because I believe all the right things in my head and I say all the right things. And, and, and my faith is mental assent, right? I mean, my mental acknowledgement that I believe this is true. But faith and obedience have always been intertwined. If your faith is real, if it's actually real, then your actions will prove it. If you really believe Jesus, then what and, and that what he said was true, and you then you'd put your life on the line to prove it. And, and it would all be clear because of the way that you live. The, the actions don't earn us anything, but they validate the reality of our faith in God. Jesus never shied away from talking about judgment. And the fact that, like, one day people would be judged on the basis of how they lived, on the basis of their actions. But, but neither did he claim that their actions could save them. Our actions are, are the testimony. Our actions bear witness that our faith is real or not. Now, one, one final thought for today, and that is, like, Okay, so what do we do about it? Right? Like, if all of this is true, then what do we do about that? If we trust Jesus, if we believe that what he said is true, and we want to obey what he teaches, then how do we respond to a parable like this? Because nowhere in this parable does it say how to use that which we've been given. It just implies that we should be smart enough to figure it out. It leaves us in a place where I think we really have to ask ourselves some, some tough questions like, okay, well, what do we like, really actually value? What do you really think that life is all about? What are we like really actually investing in? Is it the kingdom of God? Is it the stock market? Is it real estate? Our retirement? Maybe our neighbors? What is it that we're doing with the things that we have? 
things that can so easily lead us astray? How much are we investing in things that have no eternal value at all? These are questions that we should wrestle with. And if we're honest with ourselves, I don't think most of us would be very pleased with the truth of the matter. But that's the thing about Jesus and the scriptures. Like, like if we take them seriously, they confront us. They confront our way of life way more than we're usually prepared for. This parable isn't about how you should tithe more. It's not about how you should be more generous. It doesn't tell you how to spend your money or what to do with your resources. I, I say this a lot these days <laughs> because I think it's one of the most important questions that we can be asking each other. But the question I wish that we would keep asking each other is just, do you believe Jesus? Not do you believe in Jesus? There is a difference. Like, do just do you believe him? Have you spent time in the Gospels? Have you gotten to know who Jesus is? Have you studied his way of life? Have you tried to model yours after him? Have you, have you gotten to know him in such a way that you just feel like you can sit and read and listen to his teachings? And then ask yourself, do you believe him? Do you believe this is true? A lot of people, we say that we believe in Jesus. Because of, I think because of what we get from saying that we believe in Jesus. But do you believe what he had to say? And do you trust him? And do you trust his message? And do you trust his way, the way that he taught people to live so much that you're all in too? So much that you'll follow him wherever that leads you. Because I think if and when we do, I believe that God is so faithful to lead us in ways that are truly Holy Spirit inspired. And we may find ourselves maybe doing things totally different than the ways that the world around us tells us we ought to be doing things. But we are not trying to achieve the same end results as they are. We're, Jesus says, keep your eyes on eternity. Work towards eternal Ends. May we never forget that. Jesus, Jesus, the people of this world are more shrewd, more creative and clever in, in figuring out how to get what they want now. And though that doesn't even last. It doesn't even matter. But they're more creative than we are. And, 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 and what we ought to be pursuing is eternal. It, it's, it's not temporary. It doesn't fade away when our life ends or when Jesus comes back. But, but, but Jesus says, use the things of this world. Even those things, money, which tends to corrupt. You can use that which tends to corrupt for eternal, holy purposes. It helps us to see even bad things. As, as something we can use for very holy and good ends. I want to close us in a time of prayer. And when I do, I, um, I, I also tend to say this a lot too, but like, obviously, I'm going to pray my own words. Um, I'm going to pray an honest prayer that is my prayer of choosing to trust Jesus. But if you want to choose to trust Jesus, you can borrow my words. 
and pray those as if they are your own. Or I would invite you to simply pray a prayer of your own heart along with me. But let's agree together and just take take a, a minute, you know, or so and express our, our, our choice, our decision to choose to say, yes, Jesus, I believe you. I trust you. And then... And then we pray for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say, okay, you know, like, how are we going to do this? The parable doesn't tell us how to do it, but God is faithful. God is faithful to reveal everything we need to know in order to be his faithful followers. Let's pray. Holy, loving, creator God, you have been so good to us. We, we are among the most fortunate in the world. There are many who stand to benefit from the lives that you've given us and entrusted to us. I pray for your Holy Spirit's inspiration. I know there are many times in my own life when I choose to trust maybe the things that I have or the people who can give me what I want or need instead of you. But in these moments, God, we just, we, we pause to remember that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And what you give us, what you entrust to us provides us with an opportunity an opportunity to, to, to use that for eternal purposes, to benefit someone else even, to bring glory to you and to grow your kingdom alongside you. I thank you so much for your faithfulness, and I pray for your Holy Spirit's continued direction. I pray all these things in the name of your risen Son, Jesus, who with you, and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen.